One Week Season. NFL Edge Audio. Steelers at Bills. Kickoff Sunday, October 9th, 1 p.m. Eastern. Over under 46 and a half. Game Overview by Hilo. The good thing about this game is that each team is relatively an open book when it comes to how they should approach games. It appears the Kenny Pickett era has begun in Pittsburgh. The Bills generate pressure at the league's 7th highest rate, yet blitz at the lowest rate in the league. Pittsburgh quarterbacks combine for a 2.85 average time to throw, which is not good, Bob. The Bills should be able to do whatever they want on both sides of the ball here. How Pittsburgh will try to win The Steelers have shifted some of what they want to do offensively after moving on from Ben Roethlisberger and drafting Kenny Pickett and George Pickens. Last season, Ben Roethlisberger had the fastest time to throw of any qualified quarterback at 2.26 seconds per throw. That number is up to 2.74, 25th of qualified quarterbacks, for Mitchell Trubisky, and 3.03, not enough dropbacks to qualify, for Kenny Pickett this year. Ben Roethlisberger was also near the bottom of the league in intended air yards per pass attempt in 2021, while Trubisky and Pickett combined for the fourth deepest intended air yards per pass attempt. That's interesting data considering the relative improvements of their offensive line so far this season, allowing only eight sacks through four games and the fewest pressures allowed by any offensive line. For everything this offensive line is in pass blocking, they are the exact opposite in run blocking, as we'll uncover here shortly. The added time in the pocket has allowed the Steelers to attack downfield at a greater frequency, leading to an overall offensive scheme far different than what we have seen in the past. Furthermore, the paltry 42.3 PFF rating in run blocking ranks as a bottom three unit thus far. I wouldn't be surprised to see the Steelers tilt more pass-heavy as the game progresses, assuming rational coaching might not be a good idea in Pittsburgh. So far, however, they are perfectly balanced around league average in pass rate over expectation, PROE, and overall pass rate. The Steelers' offensive line is blocking to just 3.75 running back yards per carry in 2022, which ranks 7th worst in the league. Their power success rate and stuffed rate are both above average, with significant shortcomings in open field yards, 32nd, and second level yards, 27th. Najee Harris is still the clear lead back in this backfield, but his overall snap rate and running back opportunity share have taken a rather significant hit this season, 71.25% average snap rate and 17.25 running back opportunities per game in 2022. Jalen Warren surprised most by usurping Benny Snell as the preferred change of pace back, seeing 20% or more of the offensive snaps each week thus far. The pure matchup on the ground yields a paltry 3.99 net adjusted line yards metric against a Bills team allowing just 3.07 yards per running back carry in 2022. Mike Tomlin anointed rookie quarterback Kenny Pickett as the team's starting quarterback moving forward, which always seemed like the most likely scenario this season, even after Tomlin asserted that he intended to stick with Trubisky for the duration of the season to allow Pickett time to learn under Trubisky, which seems like an oxymoron. The Buffalo Bills are not going to be the easiest matchup for the rookie to see his first regular season NFL start against. They currently blitz at the lowest rate in the league, but generate pressure on the quarterback at the sixth highest rate, have allowed only 14.5 points per game, which is second, and have held their first four opponents to only 150.8 passing yards per game, first. Furthermore, the increased time to pass for Pittsburgh quarterbacks, 
spells trouble against the ferocious yet organic pass rush of the Bills, who then settle into heavy zone rates designed to confuse opposing quarterbacks. Yikes alert. Pickett started the second quarter for the Steelers, throwing zero incompletions. Well, he went 10 for 13 with three interceptions, so technically someone caught all the balls he threw. Through the final two quarters of play, his targets broke down as follows. Four targets to Pat Fryermuth and George Pickens, two targets for Deontay Johnson, and one each to Zach Gentry and Chase Claypool. The sample size is super small, but it makes sense that he leaned on his lead tight end and perimeter wide receivers in his first real NFL game action. How Buffalo Will Try to Win The Bills are one of the true unicorn teams in the NFL, a team that can simultaneously control a game via their defense and their offense. They very handily lead the league in net drive success rate, ranking first on offense and second on defense. And even better is the fact that they continually try and improve with each repetition on both sides of the ball. This is a team with Super Bowl aspirations, and they know their window is now. Their 66.75 offensive snaps per game are entirely inflated by the 92 they ran in the blistering heat Miami in Week 3, with the team averaging just 58.33 in their other contests. That's honestly more a representation of how efficient their offense is rather than anything else, as they score with such precision that they don't need to run many offensive plays. Their ninth-ranked situation-neutral pace of play and third-ranked first-half pace of play indicate the upside of the offense when being pressed on the scoreboard, which not many teams in the NFL are going to be able to do this year. Finally, such a massive portion of their offense runs through their quarterback Josh Allen, who has taken his game to the next level over the previous two seasons. Wheels up for the odds-on favorite to win the Super Bowl this year. After starting the season in an apparent timeshare, Devin Singletary has once again emerged as the borderline workhorse running back over the previous two weeks. He played 59 and 54% of the offensive snaps in the first two weeks and 73 and 88% of the offensive snaps the following two weeks. It seems the Bills keep trying to augment their rushing stable only to revert to the idea that Singletary is the best they have by a wide margin. Buffalo still leads the league in PROE and ranks 7th in overall pass rate through four weeks, meaning this is still a low-rush volume role for Singletary, but the big picture is he should be considered the guy moving forward. Add to that the most routes run in the league amongst running backs, and there is hidden upside here in most weeks. He should continue to primarily be backed up by Zach Moss, with fullback Reggie Gilliam likely to mix in for 20-25% to of the offensive snaps on a standard week. His 5'7", 203-pound frame is best suited to getting him the ball in space as opposed to running him between the tackles, but it appears the Bills are making a concerted effort to do just that. His 3.7 true yards per carry value ranks 45th in the league amongst qualified running backs. It's not yet clear why Stephon Diggs, arguably the best overall wide receiver in the game, averaged only 66.6% of the offensive snaps over the first three games of the season, but he was back up to a 95% snap rate in Week 4 against the Ravens. Played only 70% in the Week 3 loss to the Dolphins, so explaining it away as blowouts ain't it, I just can't come to a reasonable conclusion myself. It also appears as if rookie Khalil Shakir has usurped Jamison Crowder as the team's preferred wide receiver four, playing more snaps than the veteran in each healthy game thus far. Expect Gabe Davis and Stephon Diggs to remain near every down wide receivers, with slot man Isaiah McKenzie likely to hover around 50-60% to 60% of the offensive snaps in a standard week. Davis has been fighting through an ankle injury that has rendered his production largely forgettable, but better days should be ahead for a wide receiver with a 97.7% route participation rate in his healthy games. 
The pass catchers are rounded out by tight end Dawson Knox, whose 115 routes run ranks 8th in the league, but also whose 67.6% route participation falls below his career average and ranks just 18th of qualifying tight ends. The tenacious Steelers have forced the league's ninth lowest completion percentage against this year, but it's hard to expect that rate to continue against Josh Allen and the Bills after their first four opponents consisted of a reeling Bengals squad, a run-biased Patriots team, a run-biased Browns team, and the Jets. As in, they really haven't been tested like they will be this week yet. Likeliest Game Flow The Bills' defense has to be licking their chops as they prepare for a home tilt against a rookie quarterback that likes to hold onto the football, playing for a team that has made a concerted effort to attack the deeper areas of the field at heightened rates and have their quarterback hold onto the football some more. To say that it is likeliest that the Bills' defense controls this game, allowing the Bills' offense the ability to do basically whatever they want in the process, is an understatement. We shouldn't immediately expect the Bills to run a ton of offensive plays in a standard week. Their offense is simply so good that they don't need to run a lot of offensive plays most weeks. That said, their opponent this week and how the game situation sets up should afford them the opportunity for more than 58 offensive plays they've averaged in the three non-Miami games. Chargers at Browns. Kickoff Sunday, October 9th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 47.5. Game Overview by Mike Johnson. This is a rematch of a 2021 game, which was also in Week 5, in which these teams had an epic battle and combined for 89 total points. Both teams are 2-2 two and two with close losses that were in large part self-inflicted. Both offenses have been efficient, and both defenses appear vulnerable. Each team has some explosive players who are capable of taking the lid off a game. How Los Angeles will try to win The Chargers have had an interesting season to date. After a solid opening week win against the Raiders, The Chargers went on the road against the Chiefs on a short week without one of their key offensive players, Keenan Allen. They should have won that game, but had a couple of self-inflicted errors that blew it for them. Then, Week 3 was a mess for them, as Justin Herbert barely practiced with a rib injury, which left their offense out of sync against a very good Jags defense. And they lost two studs in Joey Bosa and Rashawn Slater for the season to injuries. In Week 4, the Chargers went on the road and got back on track with a resounding win against an inferior Texans team that they led from start to finish. Now, the Chargers will get a tough test on the road in Cleveland against a scrappy Browns team. The Chargers' offense got back on track last week in unsurprising fashion, by most heavily involving their best players. Justin Herbert threw the ball 39 times, and Austin Eckler, Mike Williams, and Gerald Everett carried the ball or were targeted on 37, or 60%, of the team's 62 offensive plays, not including kneel downs. While this may seem like a simple concept, the Chargers often spread the ball around to a plethora of different skill players. That approach is great when it is working, but when an offense is struggling, there is often a straightforward answer of, get the ball to your best players, that can be far more effective than any scheme or tactical changes. Even last week, in a more condensed approach, 10 different receivers were targeted by Justin Herbert. The big difference was that seven of them received three or fewer targets, and Herbert was far more efficient against a weaker defense. Entering week four, the Chargers face a Browns defense that ranks 18th in Football Outsiders past defense DVOA metrics and PFF's coverage grades. The Browns also rank 30th and 32nd in DVOA and PFF grades for run defense. Simply put, by most metrics, This is the worst defense the Chargers have faced this season. 
The Browns gave up 23 points to Marcus Mariota and the Falcons, despite Mariota only completing seven passes and the Falcons losing their best running back mid-game. In the two games the Chargers have played against defenses that currently rank in the top half of the league in DVOA, they have averaged 17 points per game. In the two games against bottom half defenses, they have averaged 29 points per game. Cleveland is the 30th ranked defense by DVOA and has faced what most would agree are relatively weak offenses in the Panthers, Jets, Steelers, and Falcons. It is also worth noting that two of the four opponents the Browns have faced so far this year had their highest scoring output the week they faced the Browns. As for how the Chargers will approach the game offensively, we can expect their usual approach of relatively fast tempo and a high pass rate over expectation in regular situations and near the goal line. The Browns' run defense has been especially bad but their pass defense appears very beatable as well, and Herbert dismantled their scheme to the tune of 400 yards and four touchdowns last season, so it's not like the Chargers are going to force themselves to run the ball an excessive amount in this spot. How Cleveland will try to win The Browns have played well to start the season and should probably have a better record than their current 2-2 mark. Their two losses, to the Jets and Falcons, have been by a combined four points, and each came in games that the Browns led deep into the fourth quarter. It should also be noted that the Browns' schedule would get considerably tougher going forward after a relatively soft early season schedule, facing teams with a current combined record of 6-10. and 10. The next seven opponents for the Browns are Chargers, Patriots, Ravens, Bengals, Bills, Dolphins, and Bucks. If you remove the Patriots from that group, the other six teams all have records of 500 or better and are in the top 12 in Vegas odds to win the Super Bowl. The approach of the Browns to each game has been relatively predictable so far this year, as they rank 29th in the league in pass rate over expectation, PROE, and 27th in the league in pace of play, seconds per play, per football outsiders. Despite their predictability, the Browns have been very successful offensively, ranking 6th in total offense DVOA behind the strength of an elite running game with a high-end offensive line and two stud running backs in Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt and efficient play from Jacoby Brissett. The Browns faced the Chargers in Week 5 last year and scored 42 points. The argument could easily be made that this year's Browns offense is much better than last year's. Amari Cooper and Donovan Peoples-Jones appear to be better scheme fits and far more explosive than Odell Beckham Jr. and Jarvis Landry were last year, while Brissett has been playing at a much higher level than we saw from Baker Mayfield last season as well. The Browns will certainly continue to rely on their dynamic running game against a Chargers defense that is ranked 30th in yards allowed per carry, and just gave up a huge game to Texans running back Damian Pierce, a game that likely would have been much bigger if not for Houston falling so far behind. When they do take to the air, they will likely funnel their game through the middle of the field with the occasional deep shot off play action. The trio of Amari Cooper, David Njoku, and Donovan Peoples-Jones has combined for 60% of the Browns' targets and 70% of the Browns' receiving yards this season, which shows us how this passing game tends to condense and also that this trio is the most efficient way for the Browns to move the ball through the air. Likeliest Game Flow This game has a lot of elements that could lead to an explosive shootout, and we've seen it from these teams before. Both teams have the same coaching staff and schemes as last year while also having equal or greater offensive talent. We can also add in the fact that both teams will be without their best defensive player this week as Joey Bosa is on IR with a groin injury and Miles Garrett is coming back from his car accident. Garrett has an outside chance to play this week, but it sounds like it will be a few weeks before he's back to his normal self. While we have teams with differing offensive approaches in terms of play selection and pace of play, what we do have is high efficiency units that have outstanding matchups in their preferred method of attack. 
This once again gives us the potential for a back-and-forth affair with neither team being able to consistently get stops and both teams having chances to break big plays. Texans at Jaguars. Kickoff Sunday, October 9th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under 43.5. Game Overview by Hilo. Both offenses rank top 6 in situation-neutral pace of play. Both offenses rank top 9 in first-half pace of play. Jaguars are one of the biggest pass-funnel defenses in the league, while Texans are one of the biggest run-funnel defenses in the league. The Jaguars are actively trying to win games, while the Texans are actively trying not to lose games. Both defenses tend to limit splash plays against, which makes it so this game environment has fewer paths to truly erupting, even with the additional plays run from scrimmage that we can expect here. How Houston will try to win Houston's weekly game plan should appear somewhat familiar under Lovey Smith. Play swarming defense to attack the football utilizing heavy zone concepts from a cover 2, cover 3, base 4-3 look, attempt to wear opponents down through an elevated pace of play, 6th situation neutral and ninth first half pace of play, and neutral rush pass rates, and keep the game close into the 4th quarter. Play not to lose through 3 quarters and try to win late. This formula has unsurprisingly left them with an 0-3-1 record losing by more than 7 points only once, last week to the Chargers in a 34-24 defeat. Even with an elevated pace of play, the Texans have run only 61 offensive plays per game, with their only game above league average coming in the overtime tie against the Colts, where they ran only 68 offensive plays, likely influenced greatly by a 30th-ranked offensive drive success rate and 19th-ranked defensive drive success rate allowed. That also comes with a 30th-ranked net yards per drive value of minus 8. Basically, their offense isn't moving the ball, and their defense isn't stopping anyone from moving the ball. That said, Houston's opponents are running a robust 71 plays per game, second most in the league to only the Steelers. In what could be viewed as a throwback to the late 1990s smashmouth football, rookie running back Damian Pierce saw 100% of the rush attempts for the Texans in Week 4, turning 14 carries into 131 yards and a score. This comes a week after he handled 20 of 24 carries for 80 yards and a score, and two weeks after he handled 15 of 18 carries, Davis Mills and Jeff Driscoll handled the other three, for 69 yards. Okay, so Pierce is the lead runner. Got it. After starting the season with a low 29% snap rate, he has increased his involvement to land snap rates of 62, 59, and 68%. All of that to say, Damian Pierce is the lead runner in this offense, an offense managing only 21 rush attempts per game. Veteran Rex Burkhead should continue to handle obvious passing situations, while fullback Troy Hairston is likely to mix in for 20-30% to 30% of the offensive snaps. While Houston's 21 personnel rates appear to be somewhat inflated, Pierce and Burkhead have played exactly zero offensive snaps together on the field. Finally, consider the Texans a heavy-set offense, preferring to run from 21 and 12 personnel at heightened rates. The pure matchup on the ground yields a well-below-average 4.16 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Jacksonville team managing the sixth-fewest adjusted line yards against. Houston's 35.5 pass attempts per game continue to reflect the overall inability to stay on the field, as their pace of play and low-to-moderate rush rates should theoretically yield a higher number of pass attempts per game. Lead pass catcher Brandon Cooks has seen his numbers tick down this season responsible for a 26.1 team target market share, a 28.7 team air yard share, a moderate 8.8 ADOT, and a moderate 85.8% snap rate share. So, while his 36 total targets look nice on paper, the underlying metrics paint a bleaker picture. 
For example, Cook grades as PFF's 52nd ranked wide receiver against zone through four weeks after finishing top 24 each of the previous three seasons, and his numbers against man are even worse. Nico Collins should finish the season second in snaps behind only Cooks, followed up by Chris Moore and a likely three to four man rotation at tight end. The Jaguars present an interesting pass funnel matchup for the Texans, but the overall state of the team, coaching tendencies, and lack of efficiency make this a tough situation to get excited about. How Jacksonville will try to win. The Jaguars have turned heads this season, and if they haven't, they should be, with their sharp turnaround after a failed experiment in 2021. Their 12th overall DVOA rank against the run, was first overall before they ran into the Eagles, highlights how they have retooled the defense, which settles into a 3-4 cover 2 base defense behind an athletic front. Nose tackle Devon Hamilton has not been known as one of the league's premier run stoppers, setting a career high thus far in 2022 with a moderate 61.9 PFF grade against the run. The beauty in this defense lies with their athletic linebackers, where 2022 first-round picks Devin Lloyd and Travon Walker have made an instant impact. On offense, Jacksonville ranks 5th in situation-neutral pace of play and 5th in first-half pace of play, which they have paired with a well-balanced offense behind one of the league's weaker offensive lines. If you weren't pleasantly surprised by now, consider this. Jacksonville ranks 4th in the league in overall DVOA, a metric that measures value over replacement on both the offensive and defensive side of the ball, behind only the Bills, Eagles, and Ravens. As in, their offense and defense are both playing extremely well over the first month of the season. The backfield employed by the Jaguars is a true 1A, 1B situation, with ultimate snaps and workload dependent on game flow. In the Jaguars' two wins, a 24-0 shutout of the Colts and a 38-10 stomping of the Chargers, James Robinson finished with snap rates of 63 and 58% with running back opportunities of 25 and 20, respectively. Second year back, Travis Etienne saw 37 and 43% snap rates and 12 and 16 running back opportunities, respectively. In the two losses, Robinson fell to an average of 48% snap rate and 13 and 8 running back opportunities. Etienne finished with an average of 51% snap rate and 8.5 running back opportunities per game. Considering the opponent, Houston's run funnel defensive composition and likeliest game flow should keep the upside in Robinson's favor, who could see 20 to 25 running back opportunities in positive game script situations. The matchup on the ground yields a modest 4.23 net adjusted line yards metric, but Robinson has overperformed relative to his team's run blocking metrics to the tune of 4.4 yards per carry. Houston has allowed 4.98 yards per running back carry this season. One of the biggest positives to come from the combination of elite DVOA and high pace of play is the 72 plays per game the Jaguars were allowed to run on offense over the first three weeks of the season before running into the Eagles. That has allowed the Jaguars to remain right at league average in pass attempts per game at 33.5 while checking in 10th in average time of possession per game. Their offensive identity revolves around 11 personnel, with Christian Kirk, Zay Jones, who was injured last week, and Marvin Jones Jr. all finding themselves in near every down rolls on a standard week. As previously explored, the Jaguars are rarely in 21 personnel and are about league average in 12 personnel, meaning the majority of their offense runs through 11. That has left primary pass-catching duties at tight end to newcomer Evan Ingram and blocking duties to Chris Manhurts. Houston plays zone coverage at the 12th highest rate to start the season, about 25% of their defensive snaps have come from man coverage, and attempts to swarm the point of reception. Considered a neutral matchup through the air with a lower likelihood of splash play generation. Likeliest game flow. It's likeliest we see the Jaguars assert control sooner rather than later through a suffocating defense and capable offense. 
This should lead to the Texans doing what they can to try and stay in the game until the fourth quarter, which has become a staple on Lovey Smith-led teams. That basically leaves the tempo, flow, and environment completely up to the Jaguars to dictate. The almost four minutes of time of possession delta between these two teams highlights what the likeliest game flow should be and how the game environment is likely to be dictated, which backs up the previous thoughts. That should evolve into one of two ultimate situations. The Jaguars control time of possession and dictate the flow of the game, where the game environment is played to a sloppy contest where each team struggles to put points on the board. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. Bears at Vikings. Kickoff Sunday, October 9th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over-under, 44. Game Overview by Pappy. Cole Komet is comically cheap because his usage has been comical. Darnell Mooney is a good player that is being misused. Dalvin Cook has been more of a 1A option than a workhorse this season. The Vikings set up well on offense, with the main obstacle to their success being the game environment and the Bears' play calling. How Minnesota will try to win. Kevin O'Connell's Vikings come into Week 5 with a 3-1 record, with one of those wins being a critical victory against division rival Green Bay. Aaron Rodgers has owned the NFC North for a long time, but this year's Vikings are a serious contender for the throne. O'Connell promised a more modern offense based on misdirection and getting his best players into space. He has mostly delivered, turning the Vikings into a pass-leaning team that uses motion to get its most dangerous players open. A good example of O'Connell's self-awareness is his comments about moving Justin Jefferson around after he disappeared in Weeks 2 and 3. Jefferson faced relentless double teams as the Eagles and Lions took an anyone-but-him approach to stop the Vikings' pass attack. Many coaches would have commented on the double team and some coaches would have said they planned to make a scheme change, but very few coaches would have been able to successfully adjust the following week. O'Connell showed he is among the very few in Week 4 when he creatively put Jefferson in a position to succeed. A big change under O'Connell has been the use of tempo. His Vikings play fast in all situations, third in total pace, notably remaining above average even when winning, 13th in pace when ahead, and playing lightning quick in close games, first in pace when the score is within 6 points. The Vikings are going to play fast. Another change under O'Connell has been a pass-leaning mindset versus a run-the-damn-ball mindset. The Vikings have had pass-to-run splits of 32-28, 46-11, 41-25, and 38-25 through the first four weeks. Week 1 is the only game that looks balanced, and it was a game the Vikings controlled throughout while the Packers struggled on offense. These numbers show us that O'Connell wants to operate an aggressive pass-leaning offense, but is willing to run the ball to salt games away when he has a lead. The Bears have been timid against the run, 24th in DVOA, and average against the pass, 15th in DVOA. Although the relative weakness of Chicago's defense is on the ground, the discrepancy shouldn't be enough to force the Vikings from their normal game plan. The Bears have faced Trey Lance in a monsoon, Aaron Rodgers with a banged-up supporting cast, he still scored 27 points, Davis Mills and Daniel Jones. So it's fair to assume Kirk Cousins and company will be the best passing attack the Bears have seen this season. Expect the Vikings to come out with their usual up-tempo, pass-leaning game plan, with the caveat that they are likely to run the ball more if they take a large lead. How Chicago will try to win. Matt, can I get a clue? Eberflus somehow has his team sitting at 2-2. Two and two. The Bears might be the worst 2-2 two and two team of all time, and that's not because most 2-2 two and two teams are good. Normally, it would make sense to throw out the Bears' first game, played in a downpour, 
but Eberflus plays offense like it's always raining, calling pass-to-run ratios of 17-37 in heavy rain, 11-27, 17-40, 22-32. Even during their Week 2 loss against the Packers, the Bears refused to open up the offense. Does Eberflus really want to hide Justin Fields that much? Does losing count for half a loss if you don't throw an interception? Does Eberflus detect high-speed wins only he can hear? We can't be sure. The only thing we know is the Bears look lost on offense. The Bears play slow, 22nd in total pace, but speed up a little when the game is close, 13th situation neutral pace, and speed up a lot when winning, 4th in pace when leading. That's a funny stat, which shows how clueless the people manning this offense are right now. But it's also somewhat small sample size noise, as the Bears have barely ever been ahead by a touchdown. Iberflus either thinks it's 1992, or his plan is to try and win games by hiding fields, keeping things close, and hoping the ball bounces his way at the end of games. Let's give him the benefit of the doubt and go with the latter. The Vikings have been below average against the pass, 20th in DVOA, and poor against the run, 27th in DVOA. Throwing out the rain game, the Bears have faced the Packers, 28th in DVOA, the Texans, 29th in DVOA, and the Giants, 21st in DVOA, against the run. Did Eberflus make this schedule? We've seen how the Bears have played so far against similar opponents, and there's no reason to believe they will deviate from their preferred approach on offense. The Bears' game plan is quickly becoming one of the easiest to predict, for us and defenses. They're going to try and win on the ground. Likeliest Game Flow This game opened with a tiny total, 42.5, but was quickly bet up to 44 a couple of days into the week. Even with the 1.5 point line jump, it's still one of the lowest total games on the slate, with the Vikings touchdown favorites expected to do the scoring. The most likely game flow is Minnesota jumping out to an early lead and the Bears aggressively battling back to stay in the game. Sorry, that's what would happen if Chicago had a real coach. The most likely game flow here is one where the Vikings take control early and Chicago refuses to quit running or to pick up their pace, creating a game environment where unless you play the Vikings that score on the way up, you're likely to be disappointed by players from this game. Lions at Patriots. Kickoff Sunday, October 9th. 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 46. Game Overview by Hilo. The Lions have been a breeding ground for fantasy production this season, primarily due to a defense that is playing man coverage at the highest rate in the league and an offense scoring the most points per game at a massive 35. These two defenses play the two highest rates of man coverage in the league. I pray, and you should too, that Jamal Williams and his 3.96 career yards per carry value over his first five years in the league are chalk this week. The Patriots are likely to be without their starting quarterback, and quite possibly could find themselves without their second-string quarterback as well. New England carries the tippy-top-ranked matchup on the ground, like first against last. How Detroit will try to win I'm not sure how long this version of the Lions will last, but good lord, it has been incredible to watch, and roster, and roster against. The good part is the aggression on offense is unlikely to change anytime soon. The bad part is the defensive design and scheme most definitely can change, which is part of the puzzle that has led to the Lions being involved in so many high-scoring affairs. On the season, the Lions have played the highest rate of man coverage in the league, have blitzed at the third highest rate, allow the second most points per drive, hold the league's second worst drive success rate allowed, and have scored the most points. Add it up, and we have a recipe for fantasy goodness week in and week out. The second highest marks in situation neutral pace of play, top 10 offensive line, and downfield aggression are simply icing on the cake. 
The Lions injury report feels like a joke that has the punchline delivered poorly. You don't know whether to laugh or cringe. DeAndre Swift, Amon Ross St. Brown, Josh Reynolds, TJ Hawkinson, DJ Shark, and Quintez Cephas did not practice on Wednesday with various ailments. Both the starting center, Frank Ragnow, and backup center, Evan Brown, joined them on the sideline, while three other offensive linemen were limited. Guard Jonah Jackson has not played in three weeks due to a ligament injury in his right hand, but managed a limited showing during the Lions' first practice of the week. I say all that not to sound dreary, but to highlight the fact that the offensive approach almost has to look different when dealing with so many injuries. I wouldn't expect DeAndre Swift back this week with the Lions on their bye in Week 6, meaning it should be another Jamal Williams show in the backfield. Williams struggled to the tune of a 3.17 yards per carry mark outside of a career-long 51-yard touchdown scamper in the third quarter last week against one of the weakest opponents he'll face all season. The dude has looked downright dreadful on tape this year, but I can't argue with his ability to score from inside the three-yard line. If the Lions can manage two end-zone pass interference calls, he's your guy this week. Not that I'm salty or anything. Enjoy your million dollars, guy who played him last week. The matchup with the Patriots yields a well-above-average 4.87 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Patriots defense allowing 4.46 yards per running back carry. Jamal Williams is averaging a career-high 4.5 yards per carry this year after averaging 3.96 yards per carry over his first five years in the league. As you heard before with the Wednesday injury report, things are not looking great for this team going into Week 5. We'll have to wait until we see what the injury report looks like on Thursday and Friday before we can make any sweeping declarations from this pass offense, but we have a pretty good idea of how the Lions will look to attack in this spot regardless of who ultimately suits up. We know Jared Goff holds the 7th highest intended air yards this year. We know the Lions are doing a good job of getting the ball to their playmakers in space, the 6th highest average yards after the catch per reception, and we know they are going to be chucking the football. 151 pass attempts through 4 games ranks 11th in the league. We also know the pass-catching pecking order goes something like Amon Ross St. Brown, DeAndre Swift, TJ Hawkinson, DJ Shark, Josh Reynolds, Khalif Raymond, Jamal Williams, Quintez Cephas, and then Tom Kennedy. Whichever way the injuries shake out this week, use that hierarchy as the guide to fantasy potential. We also know that the Patriots have played the league's second-highest man coverage rates this year, behind only the Lions, which should benefit the players that can win within the first five yards of the line of scrimmage. St. Brown ranks in the top 12 against man this year. Josh Reynolds is 26th, DJ Shark ranks 62nd, and the dynamic for his size Hawkinson shreds man coverage inside. Third behind only Kyle Pitts and Gerald Everett this year in rating against man coverage amongst qualifying tight ends. How New England will try to win. Starting quarterback Mac Jones suffered a high ankle sprain in week three and missed last week's contest because of it. He was listed as a limited participant on the Wednesday practice report, but I have a hard time believing he is close to returning after suffering a pretty significant high ankle sprain just two weeks ago. Backup quarterback Brian Hoyer was forced from Week 4's contest with a concussion and is currently in the league's concussion protocol. That means we might see third-string rookie quarterback Bailey Zappi start for the Patriots after falling just short against the Packers in overtime in Week 4. Finally, alpha wide receiver Jacoby Myers has missed the last two contests with a knee injury, but was limited on Wednesday to start the week. The Patriots have maintained their relatively run-heavy ways from last season into 2022, ranking 26th in pass rate over expectation and 25th in overall pass rate to start the season. Combine that with their slow pace of play, 30th ranked first half pace of play, and we're left with a team averaging just 60.3 plays per game through four weeks. New England ranks first. Tippy top, number one, the best, in run DVOA by a wider margin this year, 
And now they get to take on a Detroit defense ranked last. Bottom dweller. Anchor. Bad. In rush defense DVOA. The backfield for the Patriots started as a three-way timeshare, but has devolved into a two-way split following the injury to Ty Montgomery in Week 1. Ramondre Stevenson has played far more snaps and is the better player in the passing game, but it's still Damian Harris that has seen more carries and is the one that maintains the goal line role between the two. Basically, this is about as even a backfield split as you can imagine, with the heightened snap rate and increased pass game role of Ramondre offsetting the lower red zone role. To highlight that another way, Stevenson's 11.9 weighted opportunities per game almost exactly match Damian's 11.5 weighted opportunities per game, even though his snap rate is about 18% higher on average over the previous three games. And to highlight the importance of touchdowns to a running back, Stevenson's 0.77 fantasy points per opportunity fall short of Harris's 0.85, neither of which ranks in the top 24 at the position. The pure rushing matchup yields an insane 4.98 net adjusted line yards metric against the Lions team allowing 5.31 yards per running back carry against. The Patriots started the season with an offense like we all expected, with heavy 12 personnel rates and a three-way rotation at running back. After Ty Montgomery got hurt in Week 1, New England has almost done away with heavy sets entirely, with below-average snaps coming out of 12 personnel and almost zero 21 personnel usage. And now, Jonu Smith injured his ankle in Week 4 and was swiftly ruled out for the remainder of the game, before missing practice on Wednesday to start the week. Jacoby Myers did return to a limited practice on Wednesday, keeping the door open for a potential return to the lineup after missing the last two games. With the available offensive personnel and recent trends, I'd expect the Patriots to utilize increased rates of 11 personnel this week. With Hunter Henry thrust into a full-time role, Patriots don't currently have another tight end on the active roster, Devontae Parker and Jacoby Myers as near-every-down wide receivers, and a rotation of Nelson Aguilar, Kendrick Bourne, and Lil' Jordan Humphrey to fill a second perimeter role. Interestingly enough, it's actually Kendrick Bourne, Nelson Aguilar, and Jacoby Myers who grade out as above average against man coverage this season, a coverage scheme we expect the Lions to utilize heavily. Parker has long been a wide receiver that does most of his damage against zone coverages, with a general inability to shake press and man coverage within the first five yards. Likeliest Game Flow The simple fact that the Patriots are three-point home favorites as a team likely to be playing their second or third string quarterback tells us everything we need to know about how Vegas thinks this game is likeliest to play out, which is hard to ignore after writing this game up. As in, it doesn't take a large stretch of the imagination to see a game environment largely driven by what the Patriots are able to do on the ground, which likely limits the overall upside of this game. The same thing likely could have been said about last week's game between the Seahawks and the Lions, however meaning we can't simply write off how poorly the Lions are playing on defense. With that understanding, the likeliest scenario involves the Patriots controlling the tempo, flow, and environment, with the Lions likely to be thrust back into catch-up mode in the second half once more. This should lend the opportunity for additional offensive plays for the Patriots, which could go a long way in boosting the fantasy potential of their backfield. Think through the ways in which the game environment can stray from the likeliest game flow and how this game can erupt beyond a game controlled by the Patriots' run game. Seahawks at Saints. Kickoff Sunday, October 9th, 1 p.m. Eastern, over under 46. Game Overview by Hilo. Injuries have been a significant obstacle for the Saints through four weeks. It appears as if they will struggle through more this week. Expect the Saints to return to a more run-balanced offensive approach with deep passing layered in from there. Seattle ranks first in yards per drive on offense and last in yards allowed per drive on defense. They rank third in drive success rate on offense and last in drive success rate allowed on defense. 
Seattle leads the league in 12 personnel usage, a trend that should continue in conjunction with their 21st ranked offensive line. How Seattle will try to win. I had to double and triple check, but it's true. The Seahawks rank first in yards per drive and third in drive success rate on offense, while ranking dead last in yards allowed per drive and drive success rate allowed on defense. When you then consider their agonizingly slow pace of play, we're left with a team that has been able to control the tempo and flow via a ball control mentality on offense, but has largely been unable to stop a sneeze on defense. That has meant their game environments have been all over the place to start the year. The 2-2 two two Seahawks beat the Broncos at their own game in a 17-16 Week 1 victory, got blown out by the 49ers while trying to match their physicality 27-7 in Week 2, lost to a Falcons team they allowed to control the line of scrimmage 27-23 in Week 3, and then won a game that combined for 93 points against the Lions in Week 4. That realization should guide the discussion for the remainder of this write-up. The Seahawks have been largely unwilling to tailor their offensive game plan toward what their opponent is likely to give them meaning we should expect another run-balanced offensive game plan against the stalwart front of the Saints. And while that isn't necessarily a terrible thing for their chances to win here, because the Seahawks are largely incapable of blowing anyone out based on their defensive shortcomings, it does dent the likeliest game flow and the environment with some level of significance. That should theoretically mean another week of 65-70% to snap rates and the lion's share of running back opportunities for Rashad Penny Backed up by the capable rookie Kenneth Walker III, I have no clue what he wants to be called anymore. The matchup on the ground yields a near NFL average 4.365 net adjusted line yards metric against a defense allowing just 3.95 running back yards per carry. DK Metcalf and Tyler Lockett combined to account for 51.3% of the total available targets last season and are currently accounting for 53.5% of the available targets. That's an absolutely absurd team target market share to be held by only two members of the offense, meaning we can continue to treat both as moderate floor, high ceiling weekly plays for a passing offense, not as terrible as most thought heading into the season. Also interesting is the fact that veteran journeyman Marquise Goodwin has forced his way into meaningful wide receiver three snaps behind the two, playing no fewer than 41% of the offensive snaps each week this year. Will Disley, Noah Fant, and Colby Parkinson combined for the most snaps from 12 personnel in the league. The reality of the situation is anyone not named DK Metcalf or Tyler Lockett is a difficult sell in a standard week, which this game should closely resemble for the Seahawks. How New Orleans will try to win. Jameis Winston, Michael Thomas, and Alvin Kamara missed the Saints' Week 4 loss to the Vikings. It appears likely the team will get Alvin Kamara back this week, while the game day statuses of Winston and Thomas appear to be more in jeopardy. In Thomas' absence in Week 4, it was the big-bodied Marquez Callaway that acted as the only every-down pass catcher for the Saints, with Chris Olave, Jarvis Landry, and the tight ends rotating through on a relatively shortened week. They played in London early Sunday morning. Digging deeper into the composition of this team, it appears as if the Saints still want to remain run-balanced and win in the trenches, sparking a ball-controlling run game and a suffocating run defense along the way. That's largely been a struggle on both ends this year, with the team allowing 5 points per game more than they did a year ago and struggling through injuries enough to limit the upside of their offense. That's an important conclusion to reach, however, as it determines the likeliest plan of attack in a game they are likelier to control, as is the case this week against the Saints. The Saints play at the slowest situation neutral pace and second slowest first half pace of play this season, again highlighting how they would like to try and win games moving forward. Alvin Kamara returned to a limited practice on Wednesday after practicing in a limited fashion all week last week before ultimately being ruled out ahead of the Saints' trip to London. 
His rib cartilage fracture is likely a case of pain management, which is a difficult ask of a running back routinely subjected to hits on his torso. Keep an eye on his level of involvement throughout the week for any updates regarding his status on Sunday. Should he play, it would be likeliest he returns to a featured role in the backfield behind an offensive line creating the sixth most adjusted line yards this year. That would likely relegate Mark Ingram to his usual change of pace role. The matchup on the ground yields a robust 5.045 net adjusted line yards metric and should be considered the path of likely emphasis for a franchise struggling through injuries. Jameis Winston leads the league in intended air yards per pass attempt at 11.4. The normally deep and risk-averse Andy Dalton came in last week and put up 11.1 intended air yards per pass attempt, meaning the offensive game plan largely remained the same with the backup signal caller at the helm. Callaway led the team in snap rate with a healthy 97% rate, followed by Chris Olave and Jarvis Landry at the wide receiver position at 68 and 63% respectively. Traycon Smith, who I had guessed would be the primary fill-in for Thomas, saw only 23% of the offensive snaps. All of that to say, we likely aren't going to see a significant change in offensive philosophy, regardless of who ends up being active on game day, meaning we're likely to see an offensive game plan revolving around the run game and deep passing game. Rookie Chris Olave leads the league in air yards and ranks fourth in ADOT. He's also led the team in targets for three consecutive weeks, which is a significant development considering the veteran presence on this team. Expect his deep role to remain consistent regardless of the eventual status of Michael Thomas. The final stat I found particularly interesting was the low reliance on, or utilization of, play action by the Saints this year. Only 18 total pass attempts from play action. Likeliest game flow. It's likeliest we see the Saints revert to a ball control, grinded out offensive design this week against a largely inferior opponent. The efficiency of that game plan likely revolves around the health of Alvin Kamara, which would directly influence the overall flow, tempo, and environment here. That said, the league average pass rates and pass rate over expectation value for the Seahawks is largely unlikely to drastically change here based on what we have seen to date, meaning the percentage solution is for the Saints and Seahawks to combine to control the tempo, flow, and environment. That should lead to a more suppressed offensive environment that is biased towards a ground game, with total points on the scoreboard likely influenced primarily by the connection or lack thereof in the deep passing game, something that takes a slight hit should Andy Dalton be forced into another spot start for Jameis Winston. Expect the Saints to focus on making it through the injuries with as close to a 500 record as possible, and this game is a nice opportunity for them to take a more conservative approach, something the Seahawks should be largely fine to accommodate. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The Dolphins at the Jets kick off Sunday, October 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 46. Game Overview by Hilo there are a lot of moving parts with the Dolphins. Quarterback Tua Tagovailoa is almost certainly out this week. Jalen Waddell missed practice on Wednesday with a groin injury that he played through last week, tied a season low with five targets, and LJ Terran Armstead is fighting through a toe injury for the fourth consecutive week. Both teams should be considered pass-funnel defenses, and both defenses should run elevated rates of zone coverages. Volume and touchdown should drive fantasy expectations here. Miami ranks bottom 10 in pace of play, while the Jets run the fastest offense in the league. We should see additional snaps for Miami here, and that's important for a team running through the fourth fewest offensive plays per game this year. 
One of the most important things to work through here is how we expect the Dolphins to approach the offensive game plan with a full week of preparation with Teddy Bridgewater at quarterback. How Miami will try to win. Miami's weekly game plan has changed on the defensive side of the ball dependent on the opponent, with their offensive game plan remaining relatively static due to the strengths and weaknesses of their personnel. As in, they aren't ranked 4th in the league in pass rate over expectation and 6th in the league in overall pass rate because of the teams they have played. They are ranked that highly in varying pass metrics because that's where the dynamism of their playmakers is greatest. As such, I think it's best to start the exploration of this team with their defense. The entire scheme and composition of their defense have changed weekly based on opponent, shifting from a zone-heavy, moderate blitz rate team in Week 1 against the Patriots, to running the most man coverage of any defense in any single week in Week 2 against the Ravens, and then back to a zone-heavy, moderate blitz rate team in Week 3 against the Bills. Against a Jets team likely to run increased rates of 11 personnel and with a quarterback not afraid of attacking downfield, I would surmise we see a more conservative defensive game plan from the Dolphins here likely settling into heavier rates of zone coverages to mute the per-play upside of the Jets. As for the offense, the way I have attempted to translate their offensive game plan so far has been this. Even though they spent all this money at the running back position and have a dynamic mismatch tight end in Mike Gusecki, Tyreek Hill, and Jalen Waddell simply create bigger and better mismatches than either the run game, behind PFF's 25th ranked line, or Gusecki can create. It's not that this offense is one-dimensional, far from it, actually. It's a simple case of forward-thinking head coach and offensive play caller leaning into what generates the biggest mismatches and the offense's best chance of moving the ball and scoring points. Speaking of the ground game, Chase Edmonds started the season as the unquestioned lead back, flashing his abilities in both the run game and through the air en route to a 63% snap rate and 16 running back opportunities in a Week 1 victory over the Patriots. The three weeks since have seen him utilized sparingly as a change of pace back, averaging just 7.67 running back opportunities on an average of just 41% of the offensive snaps, 28% snap rate in week four. Mostert has averaged a 61% snap rate and 14 running back opportunities per game over that same span. Either way, this is a timeshare backfield on the team with the fewest rush attempts per game in the league, 20. The matchup on the ground yields a laughable 3.93 net-adjusted line yards metric against what should largely be considered a pass-funnel Jets defense. There's a new statistic that attempts to track one-on-one player coverages on defense, aptly labeled perfect coverage rate. Last week, the Jets secondary held the highest rate of perfect coverage in the league. So while their DVOA against the pass is the worst in the league and they allow the third most yards per pass attempt, this is a young defense helmed by head coach Robert Sala. Better days are almost assuredly ahead. The strength of the unit is up front and in the second level, where a veteran 4-3 base including Sheldon Rankins, Quinnen Williams, Carl Lewson, C.J. Mosley, Quan Alexander, and Quincy Williams all have either previous experience under Sala or have been defensive leaders on previous teams. Finally, the Jets' cover two base requires back-end communication to be effective, which is the area of the field where they are young and inexperienced, hence the splash plays against thus far. That said, this secondary is going to have their hands full with Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell, who are each highly capable route technicians and extremely physically gifted athletes. And guess what? Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddell each rank in the top 10 in PFF grades against zone coverage, with 82.0 and 81.0 grades, respectively. Hill and Waddle combined to account for 59.1% of the available targets in Miami, by far the highest of any wide receiver tandem in the NFL. 
They also combined for an unreal 68.3% of the team's air yards this season, leagues above any other tandem in the NFL. Tyreek Hill ranks second in yards per route run, while Waddle ranks fifth. There isn't much else left to say about these two other than they carry some of the highest ceilings of any wide receiver on a weekly basis. The final thing to note for Miami is the likely absence of starting quarterback Tua Tagovailoa, who has yet to clear the league's concussion protocol after being forced from each of the last two contests with a head-neck trauma. Teddy Bridgewater attempted 23 passes after Tua was forced from their Week 4 loss to the Bengals. His targets broke down as follows. 8 to Tyreek, 5 to Trent Sherfield, 3 to Raheem Mostert, 2 of each for Mike Gusecki and Jalen Waddell, 1 each to Chase Edmonds and River Craycroft, and 1 throwaway. With a full week to game plan for the Jets, it's likely we see Waddle's targets spike back up after he was out-targeted by the team's wide receiver 4 in Sherfield last week. Worth noting, Jalen Waddle missed practice on Wednesday with a groin injury, while Cedric Wilson returned to a full practice. How New York will try to win The Jets have run 72.3 offensive plays per game due to the fastest pace of play, an overall 30th-ranked net points per drive value, and an overall 27th-ranked net drive success rate value. As in, they play fast, they give up points in a hurry, and they struggle to score points. When trying to decipher how this team is trying to win games, we should really start on the defensive side of the ball, where head coach Robert Sala brings over a 4-3 base cover 2 scheme from his days in San Francisco. The whole premise of that style of defense is to aggressively stop the run, attack the point of reception, limit splash plays against, and crack down in the red zone. Unfortunately, the youth and relative inexperience in the secondary has made it so they are easier to attack through the air than on the ground, something teams have taken full advantage of to date. The ultimate goal for this team is to wear the opposition down through elevated pace and additional volume, which hasn't translated due to the defensive woes in the secondary. That said, this is an improving team. The ground game has been split between rookie Brees Hall and Michael Carter, with the former taking over a larger role as the season has progressed. The offensive line has blocked to a 4.06 adjusted line yards value and 4.20 running back yards per carry value behind PFF's 31-ranked offensive line. There were big expectations from this unit heading into the season, which have since been swiftly derailed by injuries. The matchup yields a paltry 3.76 net adjusted line yards metric against a Miami defense allowing just 3.11 yards per running back carry this season, fourth fewest in the league. Similar to the Dolphins, we're not interested in the run game of the Jets as much as we're interested in the potential volume through the air. The Jets have averaged an astonishing 48.3 pass attempts per game through four weeks, first in the league by a full 4.0 over second place Arizona. Their offense runs primarily from 11 and 12 personnel with no true fullback on the roster, which has meant elevated snap rates for wide receivers Elijah Moore, Corey Davis, rookie Garrett Wilson, and tight end Tyler Conklin. Most notably here, Elijah Moore is the lead receiver and Garrett Wilson has continued to see his role expand, up to 77% snap rate last week. Wilson's 29.2% targets per route run rate ranks 17th in the NFL, while Elijah Moore has the second most routes of any pass catcher. All of Moore, Wilson, and Corey Davis have achieved above-average marks against zone coverage this season, with only Wilson achieving above-average marks against man this year, like top 12, unreal for a rookie at this point. So while we can take an educated guess as to the defensive scheme most likely to be employed by the Dolphins here, as covered above, we expect them to revert back to elevated zone rates against the downfield nature of Zach Wilson. 
The player best suited to handle whatever the opposition throws at them has most certainly been Garrett Wilson this year. Likeliest Game Flow This is an interesting game where the Jets are likely to control the tempo, the Dolphins are likely to control the flow, and both are likely to combine to force the game environment. As in, the Jets play fast and almost regardless of flow. The Dolphins pass a ton almost regardless of flow, and both teams present a pass funnel defense for their opponent. This combines to form one of the more sure thing environments of the week. We should expect ample offensive plays run from scrimmage here, plays that are less dependent on game flow than in other spots. All of that is meant to say we should be fairly confident about the volume from this game as a whole, meaning there are certain spots that we should be highly interested in from a fantasy perspective. That also makes the game flow less important to us as we hunt for varying levels of certainty. The final and likely most important piece of the puzzle here is how we expect the Dolphins to game plan with a full week of Teddy Bridgewater preparation and repetitions with the first team. To me, the one-year, $65 million contract the Dolphins gave Bridgewater was because of the physical attributes he possesses, which closely mirror those of their starting quarterback, Tua Tagovailoa. That's strict and pure conjecture. If that truly is the case, I'd expect the offensive game plan to remain relatively similar to what it would be in this spot were Tua to be the starter. All of that to say, it is likely we see Mike McDaniel continue to push the ball to his best playmakers, Tyreek Hill and Jalen Waddle. The Falcons at the Buccaneers kick off Sunday, October 9th at 1pm Eastern with an over-under of 47. Game Overview by Mike Johnson the angry Tom narrative has been hanging around for a while, but will single Tom become a new narrative? If so, is it good or bad? The Bucks' offense is finally operating at full strength with their full cast of offensive weapons available. The Falcons are 2-2 two two, thanks to some good fortune and a solid running game, but they have some new obstacles to overcome this week. The Bucks' defense had been dominant for the first three weeks of the season before being dominated by Patrick Mahomes and the Chiefs in an island game on Sunday night in Week 4. How Atlanta Will Try to Win The Falcons are the 31st-ranked team in pass rate, ahead of only the historically conservative Chicago Bears. The Falcons have ridden their running game, some positive variants, and a relatively weak schedule to a 2-2 record and sit tied for the NFC South lead with their opponent this week. The Falcons have achieved what many would consider impossible by ranking second in rush offense DVOA while also ranking second to last in yards per carry. The aforementioned week schedule has a lot to do with making that possible, as the Falcons have yet to face anything close to what they will see this week in a near-fully healthy Bucks team. Atlanta's approach will continue to be pretty straightforward, with a heavy reliance on the running game and leveraging Marcus Mariota's dual-threat ability to try to create some confusion and move the ball on the ground. The Bucks have the third-ranked DVOA pass defense and have historically been very good at stopping the run, acting as a pass funnel for the last few seasons. The Falcons are also going to be without top running back Corderell Patterson, leaving the backfield to fourth-round rookie Tyler Algier and replacement-level runner Caleb Huntley. The Bucks will know what the Falcons are trying to do and should be able to sell out to stop it, in addition to their high level of personnel and athletic linebackers that should stuff the runs for short gains or losses that leave Atlanta in a lot of long down and distant situations and force early three and outs. 
When you combine that matchup with the likelihood of an aggressive and efficient Bucks offense, it becomes a game of chicken for head coach Arthur Smith on how long they will bang their heads against the wall and how far they will fall behind before opening things up. How Tampa Bay Will Try to Win The Bucks' offense looked like a shell of itself for the first three weeks of the season, scoring only 44 offensive points through three games and running the ball on over half their offensive plays in the first two weeks. Things seemed to be turning around, however, as the Bucks scored 31 points against the Chiefs in Week 4 and have thrown the ball on 82.5% of their offensive plays over the last two weeks. Granted, a lot of the Week 4 data was certainly influenced by game script as the Bucks fell behind and played almost the entire game trailing by multiple scores. But the stars seemed to be aligning for some major positive regression for this offense and a return to the aggressive and high-scoring team we have come to expect the last two seasons. There is undoubtedly a correlation between the increased aggressiveness of the Bucks' offense and the return of their trio of star-wide receivers. Mike Evans looked like his dominant self against the Chiefs, and Chris Godwin looked healthy in his return from a hamstring injury, while Julio Jones split time with Russell Gage, but his presence unquestionably helps this offense by stressing opposing defenses. On the season, the Bucks ranked 9th in pass rate over expectation and 21st in situation-neutral pace of play. While we can sometimes use these metrics to use past data to predict future behavior, we can also find things that look out of place based on what we know about a team and find spots where we expect things to correct over time. I would put the Bucks' offense into that category in both of those metrics, as I expect they will be a top 5 pass rate team and a top 10 team in pace going forward. One of the biggest issues the Bucks' offense has had this season has been giving Tom Brady a clean pocket. The Falcons' defense has PFF's 31st-graded pass rush and is Football Outsiders' 22nd-ranked defense while ranking bottom half against both the run and the pass. The Bucks' offense that we will see this week is not the same offense that most metrics and statistical analyses will be describing. Likeliest Game Flow The Bucks were just embarrassed on national TV in an island game, and Tom Brady's personal life has been in the spotlight all week. This is about as clear of a situation as we will ever see of a team wanting to get right, and we've seen the Bucks keep their foot on the gas with a big lead deep into games in the past. Despite the vastly differing views about these teams from the public, the reality is that the Bucks and the Falcons are both 2-2 two and two and tied for the division lead. The most likely scenario here involves a very aggressive Bucks game plan early, and often that takes control of the game and sends a message of who the NFC South still runs through, while also laying the groundwork for the Bucks to go on a bit of a run, as their next three opponents are all relatively weak. The result will likely be the Falcons playing catch-up and the Bucks playing look what we can do. The Titans at the Commanders kick off Sunday, October 9th at 1 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43. Game Overview by Hilo Strength-on-strength matchup for the Titans, and strength-on-weakness matchup for the Commanders, as far as how each is likeliest to attack here. Someone is going to have to step up amongst the Titans' pass-catching core to lighten the box for Derrick Henry. The team is struggling with low success rates from power formations in 2022. The overall game environment likely depends greatly on how successful Derrick Henry can be, with the Titans struggling to score points when they become one-dimensional. Expect Washington to morph back towards an 11-personnel-based offense against the relatively inferior pass rush of the Titans, relative to the Eagles and the Cowboys. 
How Tennessee Will Try to Win The formula remains consistent for the Titans into 2022, with a slow pace of play, 31st-ranked situation-neutral pace of play, and 24th-ranked first-half pace of play, elevated rush rates, 8th-lowest pass rate over expectation, and 7th-highest overall rush rate, and increased heavy personnel rates, 21 and 12 personnel alignments. One of the bigger adjustments this team has had to make is how to handle their likeliest plan of attack with an underperforming defense. They allowed the six fewest points per game in 2021, 20.7, but are all the way down to eighth most in 2022, 25.3. So far, at least, the answer has been, it doesn't really matter, as the team is approaching games in the same way as they previously have under Mike Vrabel. The preseason loss of Harold Landry marked a massive blow to a defense that thrived on wreaking havoc in the backfield. Landry was responsible for over 30% of the Titans' sacks in 2021 and is out for the season. Linebacker Bud Dupree has stepped into a more featured role in the second level and is now dealing with a slew of injuries himself, most notably a hip injury that caused him to be limited last week, play in Week 4, and be listed as DNP to start the week in Week 5. Fellow linebacker Zach Cunningham and Ola Adenayi also mispracticed to start the week. The Titans live and die by how effective Derrick Henry can be in the run game, which has been rather hit or miss to start the season. That also took another hit two weeks ago with the season-ending injury to Taylor Lewan, one of the league's best overall tackles. That said, this is still a top 10 on-paper run-blocking offensive line, one that has largely underperformed year-to-date. The biggest shortcoming thus far has been the power success rate, rush success rate on runs between tackles from heavy formations, first overall in 2021 and 25th in 2022. The 4.39 adjusted line yards value from this year almost directly matches the 4.31 value from last year, which could signal one of two things. One, communication and assignments have been an issue up front and we can expect improvements in the power run game. Or, two, the loss of A.J. Brown means teams can dedicate increased personnel to the box without a true game-breaking talent on the perimeter. I don't know the answer for sure without going back and watching every offensive snap to see where the weak side safety has been playing against them, but I would venture a guess that Henry has seen an increased rate of stacked boxes this year. That is unlikely to change anytime soon, particularly considering the injury to Traylon Burks that should keep him out of the lineup for the immediate future. The pure matchup on the ground yields a below-average 4.16 net-adjusted line yards metric against a Washington defense allowing 4.21 yards per carry and the 10th lowest power success rate to opposing backfields. It looks as if dynamic rookie wide receiver Traylon Burks will miss this contest with turf toe, which is likely going to materially impact how the commanders scheme up their defense, as previously discussed above. That should also leave Robert Woods and Nick Westbrook-Akine as the only near-every-down pass catchers, with a lofty emphasis on heavy sets, 21 and 12 personnel. All of Jeff Swaim, Austin Hooper, Chigosium Okonkwo, and Kevin Rader have been active the previous two weeks at tight end for the Titans, with additional involvement from fullback Tory Carter. The Commanders have played man coverage defensive alignments at a top 10 rate, something Robert Woods is going to have to exploit in order to keep boxes lighter for Henry. Rookie wide receiver Kyle Phillips has fallen out of favor recently, but he could see increased run again with fellow rookie Traylon Burks likely out. 
That could be pertinent considering Phillips carries the best rating against man coverage of all Titans pass catchers this season. How Washington will try to win. The commanders appear to be trickling down in their aerial aggression metrics, but the fact of the matter is they are simply finding themselves in the more negative game environments than they were to start the season. As in, their overall pass rate remains extremely high, third in the league. It's just that their expected pass rate has grown to match their actual pass rate based on three straight weeks of largely negative game flow. Washington predictably struggled in back-to-back -back weeks against the superior defenses of the Eagles and the Cowboys after averaging 24.5 points per game against the Jaguars and the Lions. The Titans present a much softer test defensively, which should allow the Commanders to return some level of offensive success here. The loss of Amani Hooker for the Titans led to the increased rates of cover one man alignments in week four, while the loss of Bud Dupree and Harold Landry has meant lower pressure rates up front. Those are important trends considering Carson Wentz and his splits with more than and less than 2.5 seconds to throw. Wentz ranks 14th in quarterback rating with more than 2.5 seconds to throw and 28th with less than 2.5 seconds to throw of qualified passers. Rookie running back Brian Robinson is set to be activated from the reserve list this week, which opens his 21-day practice window and gives him a shot to return against the Titans. Head coach Ron Rivera said this week that he has a good shot to suit up in Week 5. That's pretty remarkable considering he was shot twice in the leg in an attempted carjacking just five weeks ago. It will be interesting to see how his presence affects Antonio Gibson's snap rate and opportunity share, as Rivera and the Commanders clearly preferred Robinson during the preseason. Either way, the Commanders averaged just 24.5 rush attempts per game and were likely looking at a two- or three-way split in opportunities amongst Antonio Gibson, J.D. McKissick, and possibly Brian Robinson. The pure rushing matchup yields a well-below-average 4.01 net-adjusted line yards metric behind an offensive line generating only 3.85 adjusted line yards. I covered earlier Carson Wentz's splits based on time allowed to throw, which should be the greatest predictor of potential offensive success moving forward for this team. Similar to Jared Goff in Detroit, Carson Wentz is more than capable as a passer with a clean pocket and with time to throw, but he turns into a quarterback with a bad case of the yips when pressured. That could be an issue here for the Titans considering the multitude of defensive injuries from key contributors so far this season. The Titans have also played around 30% man coverage defensive alignments in every game so far this season, indicating an unlikelihood to alter their defensive game plan based on the opponent. That also means they are largely predictable in situational play calling on the defensive side. All of that comes together to form a situation where Wentz and the commanders should eventually find offensive success through the air this week, which is likeliest to come through their wide receiver trio of Terry McLaurin, rookie Jahan Dodson, and Swiss Army knife Curtis Samuel. The commanders have increased their 12 personnel heavy set rates over the previous two weeks against superior pass rushes at the direct detriment of Jahan Dodson's snap rates. I would guess we see those rates back around Washington normal this week, meaning heavier rates of 11 personnel and a higher snap rate for Dotson. Likeliest Game Flow The Titans have scored 24 points in the first half on consecutive weeks and have also failed to score a single second-half point for consecutive weeks. Those games were against the top 10 run defenses of the Colts and Raiders, meaning it's less about matchup for the Titans and more about keeping teams honest in the secondary. 
Quite simply, the fewer stacked boxes Henry faces, the higher his and the Titans' efficiency will be. Two weeks ago, it was Traylon Burks that kept the Raiders honest. Last week, it was Robert Woods with some long receptions to start the game. But that also highlights how one-dimensional the Titans can become. And if they are unable to keep the Commanders on their heels early, we could see them struggle against another above-average run defense. That keeps this game flow and environment a wide range of potential outcomes, likely directly correlated to the Titans and their level of success early in the game. That said, the relative upside appears bleak considering the lack of dynamic player makers outside of Derrick Henry for the Titans. Enjoying the game breakdowns? Go to OneWeekSeason.com and become a subscriber to gain access to in-depth analysis, strategy interpretations, and more to help you bring your daily fantasy football game to the next level. The 49ers at the Panthers kick off Sunday, October 9th at 4.05 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 39. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The 49ers appear to be getting right back into the form that took them to the NFC Championship game last season. The Panthers' offense continues to impress me with how difficult they make the game look on a weekly basis. Slow pace by the 49ers and low efficiency by the Panthers gives this game a low floor and low ceiling from a scoring perspective. This may be the last time we get to read an NFL Edge write-up about a Matt Rule coach team. How San Francisco will try to win. The loss of Trey Lance for the season may have stung for a bit, especially considering the massive investment the team has in him, but it was probably for the best for the 49ers' prospects this season. They have the look of a championship team with their dominant defense and running game taking center stage once again, and Jimmy Garoppolo doing just enough to get the ball to their playmakers to have them in position to win games. Playing on a short week against an inferior opponent, we should expect the 49ers to attempt to come in and take care of business on the road. The 49ers' backfield appears to be placed firmly in the hands of Jeff Wilson, who dominated the running back work in Week 4 and looked terrific with burst and explosion on his runs against a very good Rams run defense. This week, they play a solid Panthers defense that is middle of the pack against both the run and the pass. While the 49ers are unlikely to just run wild from the outset of this game, the physicality of their style of play and creativity of their running game is likely to wear down this Panthers defense over time, and that combined with likely short fields given to them from the Panthers offense will likely give the 49ers the chance to impose their will here. It is hard to understate the difference in opponent for the Panthers defense after facing the vanilla scheme of the Cardinals with very few playmakers and tackle breakers last week, to now facing a 49ers team that is loaded with some of the best players in the league with the ball in their hands. Sometimes football doesn't have to be that complicated. The Panthers were tackling players under 200 pounds and guys who are very slow for the Cardinals last week, and now they are going to have to try to bring down players who are big, fast, and agile. Good luck. How Carolina will try to win. The Panthers' offense scored 24 points in their Week 1 game against the Browns, which in hindsight may tell us more about the Browns' defense than anything. In the three games since, the Panthers' offense has scored 23 total points in the first three quarters of games. They've been lucky enough to be aided by two defensive touchdowns during that time, which helped them keep competitive, but the overall state of the offense has been startling to say the least. What may be the most alarming is the fact that the Panthers have only played one defense, the Saints, who is ranked as a top-ten unit through four weeks. 
So not only are the Panthers making football look very hard, they are doing it against relatively weak opponents. If any Panthers fans read that last paragraph and are still hanging on to a glimmer of hope, let this one serve as the Mortal Kombat finishing move to your eternal optimism. In Week 5, the Panthers welcomed the 49ers and their number one ranked defense to town. The 49ers' pass defense ranks 4th in Football Outsiders DVOA, 1st in PFF coverage grade, and 5th in PFF pass rush grade. They also rank 1st in DVOA against the run and have PFF's number 3 graded run defense. Finally, the 49ers have given up a total of only one offensive touchdown in their last three games. Meanwhile, Baker Mayfield ranks 30th in the NFL in QB rating and was dominated last week by a Cardinals defense that harassed him and continually batted balls down at the line of scrimmage. The Panthers' rushing offense hasn't been much better, ranking 20th in the league despite having one of the league's best running backs and some large investments in the offensive line. The Panthers are relatively balanced in their play calling, but it likely won't matter much in this matchup. It will be impressive if the Panthers are able to score an offensive touchdown on anything outside of a broken play or short field from a turnover. Likeliest Game Flow The Panthers have run the fewest offensive plays in the league through four weeks, and it seems unlikely that changes this week. They are playing with the third fastest situation neutral pace of play, but given their likely lack of efficiency in this matchup, it seems likely that the pace they choose to play at will be determined by the stamina of their punter and if he needs more time between kicks. With the Panthers having short possessions and the 49ers draining the clock and keeping it moving with a heavy dose of their running game, this game should have decreased play volume and a relatively modest scoring environment, as the implied spread and total would suggest. The Panthers' offense is almost sure to have huge struggles all game, so the outcome of the game lies mostly in the question of how well the 49ers' offense performs. If the Panthers win, it would likely be in a 16-13 type of game, while if the 49ers win, it could also be in a low-scoring affair or in a blowout, Matt Rule, you're fired type of 38-3 dominant performance. The Eagles at the Cardinals kick off Sunday, October 9th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 49. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The machine that is the Eagles' offense continues to roll, scoring 28 points in the remnants of a hurricane against a very good defense last week. The blitz-heavy tendencies of the Cardinals will leave them exposed in one-on-one situations against the playmakers of the Eagles. The Cardinals' offense is basically operating at a level of organized dysfunction this season. The Eagles' defense is for real and has allowed only 28 first-half points in four games this season. This is the game with the highest scoring expectations on the slate, with a very high floor and an unknown ceiling. How Philadelphia will try to win The Eagles appear to be a team that will beat their opponent in whatever way the game situation calls for. In Week 1, the Eagles had four rushing touchdowns and dominated the Lions, who are now ranked dead last in run defense, for most of the game before a late Detroit comeback made the score look closer than it was. In Weeks 2 and 3, the Eagles threw the ball all over the weak pass defenses of the Vikings and Commanders. 
In week four, the Eagles once again leaned on their running game to the tune of four touchdowns in game conditions that made throwing the ball very difficult, and they did so against a Jaguars defense that was previously ranked as one of the top run defenses in the league. If we are looking for context clues for how the Eagles will try to attack, it appears that they are balanced and talented enough to pick their spots and attack the weaknesses or tendencies of their opponent. This week's game is in a dome in Arizona, so there will be no weather issues here. They are also facing a Cardinals team that blitzes at the highest rate in the league, has Football Outsiders' 28th ranked pass defense by DVOA, and is ranked 32nd and 30th, respectively, in coverage grade and pass rush grade by PFF. These signs all point to a high likelihood of an aggressive and pass-heavy game plan for the Eagles, as they will look to isolate and exploit the talents of their elite receiving core against man-to-man coverage on the back end when the Cardinals bring their blitzes. It's also worth noting that the Eagles' offensive line is PFF's number one graded pass-blocking unit, making it unlikely that the Cardinals' pressures get home very often and increasing the chances of big plays down the field early and often. How Arizona will try to win. Arizona's offense, if you want to call it that, is really something to behold. I've probably been assigned too many Cardinals games this season, as every week it ends up basically being the same story of me ranting about how vanilla their scheme is and lamenting the lack of creativity in their offensive guru head coach Cliff Kingsbury. If you were hoping for something different this week, I'm sorry to disappoint you. The Cardinals have scored 16 first-half points through four weeks. To put that into perspective, the Eagles have scored 20 points in the first half of every game this season. The Cardinals' scheme has predictable formations that rely heavily on their players to win one-on-one matchups, despite having a receiving core that is not built to win individual matchups. Marquise Brown has been solid on volume so far this season, but he is not a true alpha who can consistently beat defenses as the focal point of a passing game. Zach Ertz has also put up solid numbers in the box scores, but he is far from an explosive talent and most of his production has come against soft coverages when playing from behind. The other two main options for the Cardinals' passing game are Rondale Moore, who is tiny by NFL standards at 5'7", 180 pounds, and Greg Dortch, a journeyman type who was undrafted and is physically underwhelming. The Cardinals played more primarily on the perimeter last week, which is not what his physique or playing style is suited for, although he did play on 85% of offensive snaps in his first game back from a hamstring injury, which was an encouraging sign. The backfield is more of the same, with three players seeing time on the field and none of them having much explosiveness or playmaking ability. It's just not good right now for the Cardinals, especially when facing an Eagles defense that is, by almost any metric, one of the top three units in the NFL. As mentioned before, the Cardinals' first half offense has been terrible, but their second half offense has been solid when they pick up the tempo and turn to more of an organized chaos approach with Kyler Murray extending plays and breaking down defenses. The Cardinals may have to turn to that approach sooner rather than later if they want to keep up with the Eagles this week. Likeliest Game Flow The Eagles have been remarkably consistent in their offensive production, particularly in the first halves of games, and the Cardinals have been consistently very poor in first halves as well. This makes the most likely game flow to be some big plays and or long drives by the Eagles early that builds a lead and forces the Cardinals into their frenzied catch-up mode sooner than they have any week since their week one dismantling by the Chiefs. 
The Eagles have the fourth highest situation neutral pace of play, and the Cardinals are no strangers to playing with pace, and may view using tempo to wear out the Eagles' defense as their only chance of offensive success against such a strong unit. This should lead to elevated play volume, and if the Cardinals are able to put some points on the board, it could be a situation where the Eagles are pushed harder than they have been all season while playing in optimal weather conditions. In any regard, all the elements are there for a game that lives up to the billing as the highest game total on the slate, with a consistent and highly efficient team facing an explosive and volatile team. It wouldn't be shocking for the Eagles to win this game by three or more scores. It also wouldn't be surprising for this to turn into a back-and-forth affair that ends up something like 38-34. The Cowboys at the Rams kick off Sunday, October 9th at 4.25 p.m. Eastern with an over-under of 43. Game Overview by Mike Johnson The Cowboys are looking to keep pace with the Eagles in the NFC East before their big divisional matchup next week. The Rams continue to pass the ball at a high rate this year, but their pace and efficiency have taken major hits. Both teams have split backfields and an alpha receiver who dominates targets. Both defenses are strongest at stopping the preferred method of attack of their opponent, potentially making it difficult for both teams to move the ball. How Dallas will try to win The Cowboys have gone 3-0 with Cooper Rush as their starting quarterback, and it appears likely that Rush will start again in Week 5 against the Rams. The Cowboys were an aggressive team passing the ball last season, but through four weeks they are 27th in the NFL in pass rate over expectation as they continue to keep Cooper Rush in a game-manager type of role, running the ball on first down at the highest rate in the league. The Cowboys' defense has also been outstanding. Through four weeks, they have held every opponent to fewer than 20 points. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, is the likely approach for the Cowboys this week. They are 3-1 and one and a game out of first place in their division, despite playing nearly a month without their franchise QB. They face the Eagles next week in a game with huge divisional implications and could have Dak Prescott back for that game. In the meantime, we should expect the Cowboys to lean on the same recipe of defense and their running game with the occasional play action and schemed passing work designed to take advantage of aggressive defenses. The Rams' run defense is a top three unit in both DVOA and PFF grade, despite facing multiple run-heavy offenses including the Falcons and the 49ers, two of only five teams who run the ball at a higher rate than the Cowboys. While this is a tough test, we should expect the Cowboys to keep doing what they've been doing until they are forced out of that approach. With the Rams' offense struggling and the Cowboys' defense rolling, it is unlikely they will be forced to do such a thing at any point early in this game. How Los Angeles will try to win. The Rams are throwing the ball at the fifth highest pass rate over expectation through four weeks, which is actually a higher rate than they threw the ball last season on their way to the Super Bowl. The issue they've had is a huge dip in efficiency as they've had some personnel changes, teams have adjusted to many things in their scheme, and they have had many protection issues. We should note that while the Rams haven't looked great this year, they are still a .500 team and their two losses are to the Bills, who are the odds-on favorite to win the Super Bowl, and the 49ers, who reached the NFC Championship game last season and have the number one defense in football. The Rams are certainly a step down from the team we saw last year, but they are far from finished and still have a plethora of high-level talent.
For this week, the greatest concern for the Rams has to be their offensive line, and in particular, their pass protection. The Rams are dead last in PFF pass blocking grade, while the Cowboys rank second in the NFL in PFF pass rush grade and lead the league in adjusted sack rate. Saying the Cowboys have a mismatch in their pass rush is an understatement. The Cowboys' pass rush, which they achieve while blitzing on a modest portion of their snaps, is going to give the Rams fits and force them to get the ball out of Matthew Stafford's hands relatively quick. The Cowboys had seen the fewest air yards of any defense in the league through three weeks, and then dismantled the Carson Wentz-led commander's offense in week four. Adding to that, the Rams' passing game has been very condensed so far this year, with Cooper Cup and Tyler Higbee combining for 61.3% of the targets through four weeks. The skill sets of both Cup and Higbee are well-suited to a short, quick passing game, which again points us to a scenario where they are getting the ball out quickly. Frankly, the Rams just don't have enough weapons and don't strike enough fear in opponents this season, with Ben Skowronik and Allen Robinson taking the places of Robert Woods, Odell Beckham, and Van Jefferson. That, combined with their offensive line falling apart, has neutered a previously potent passing attack. The Rams would be wise to run the ball more, as their offensive line's bright spot has been their 6th-ranked PFF run blocking, and the Cowboys' run defense is bottom 10 in both DVOA and PFF grades. It will be interesting to see if the Rams will adjust their pass-heavy game plan so far this season to take some pressure off the passing game and exploit a relative weakness of the Cowboys, and if they go that route, will be interesting to see if they are able to do so efficiently. Likeliest Game Flow This game shapes up as a bit of a slugfest relative to what one would have expected when looking at this game on the schedule before the season started. This game's total is down nearly 10 points from what it opened at before the season, and deservedly so as the Rams' offense looks like a shell of itself and the Cowboys continue to rely on ball control and defense to protect Cooper Rush. Adding to these issues is the fact that both defenses are strongest against the strength of their opposing offense, with the Cowboys wanting to run the ball against the tough Rams run defense, and the Rams being a pass-heavy team that is largely inefficient and is facing a very good Cowboys pass rushing coverage unit. Add it all up, and the current spread and game total seem fairly indicative of the most likely game flow and outcome, a relatively low-scoring and competitive game, with the winner likely to emerge from whoever makes the fewest mistakes as opposed to whoever makes the most plays. The fast pace of play for the Cowboys and the high pass rate, and subsequent incompletions for the Rams, could help add play volume for both sides, but the defenses here are unlikely to let scoring get too wild even if there are more plays. On the flip side, if the relative weakness of the Cowboys' run defense encourage the Rams to run more and or the Cowboys slow their pace down considerably in a road game against the defending Super Bowl champs, this game could end up even uglier than expected with something like a 16-9 game without any usable performances.